Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. Hey, Ben, we have a new patron. Yeah, we do. Uh, signing up uh, to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. Uh, it is a longtime listener follower of the show. Um, on Patreon, they signed up as... Begamot, so thank you, Begamot, aka Behemoth uh, on Twitter, aka Jormungander on Tumblr. Uh, and I know all of these are the same person because it's the same avatar on all of them. Uh, but thank you so much for signing up to the Patreon. Thanks, Behemoth. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today, Sarah. How about yourself? Good. We're recording on a night that we would normally be playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. So I do feel like we should have some dice out. (laughs) So, like, we have to make intelligence checks to determine how good our analysis of the movie will be at the end? Yeah. I see. (laughs) What are we watching today? Does it have anything to do with D&D? Um, kind of, in the sense that, like, the basic premise... Of, like, D&D is, like, usually, like, people going into, like, a lost tomb or, like, a a fallen temple and, like, running into traps and curses and fighting monsters and then coming out with loot. And that's basically what most mummy movies are, so I guess? That's kind of (laughs) cool. But today we are watching The Mummy's Tomb from 1942. And uh, this is the... Third mummy movie. Yes. Uh, it's sort of a B-movie sequel to The Mummy's Hand from 1940, which was kind of a reboot of The Mummy concept after the original Mummy from 1932. Yeah, we covered that in episode 35, and it's currently ranked 53, which is kind of funny. It's the two numbers reversed. Oh, sure. Um, and it was directed by Carl Freund. It has our boy, Boris Karloff, as the mummy... Imhotep. Imhotep was killed back in, like, ancient Egyptian times because he loved this woman named Anxunamun, and she died, and he tried to bring her back to life, and that all went terribly. So Imhotep um, is a mummy, and he gets brought back to life by some scrolls of the dead. He eventually finds the reincarnation of his love, Anxunamun, uh, currently named Helen, (laughs) And basically, he tries to bring back Onksinamen through a ritual with Helen. But the plan kind of uh, crumbles into dust, as it were, um, when Helen, as Onksinamen, calls out to the goddess Isis, who then steps in and destroys Imhotep in Mm -hmm. a kind of deus ex machina. Yeah, pretty literally. Literally. Now, the only other thing that's kind of notable about the mummy that would be relevant here is we had Jack Pierce doing the makeup, but we really only got to see a lot of it during the film's prologue, basically, where um, Karloff is the most mummy. Mm -hmm. Um, When he gets brought back to life, he goes under the name Ardeth Bay, and he just looks like a normal person with, like, some wrinkles, basically, like, kind of very parched. Like, yes. he has parchment for, for skin. But 
in terms of the most impressive part of the makeup that comes in the prologue. Yeah, I mean, yes, there's there's makeup, like, Jack Pierce is doing makeup on Karloff through the whole film, mm -hmm. but it's just only in that beginning that he looks like what you would think of when you think of, like, a mummy in your head, right? Yeah. So then fast forward eight years, we have The Mummy's Hand in 1940, directed by Christy Caban. Mm-hmm. And like Ben kind of said, it's a reboot of sorts. Um, it's a whole new mummy movie. It's kind of trying to cash in on the popularity of Karloff and the resurgence of horror without having to bring Karloff back. Yeah. We talk about it in episode 78, and it's currently ranked 69. Nice. <laughs> and the film is about um, this Egyptian priest Andoheb using tana leaves to keep the mummy Karis at rest. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> Steve Banning and Babe Jensen are looking for Princess Ananka's tomb, and they receive funds to support the expedition from the magician Silvani yes. and his daughter Marta. And Oheb kind of tries to block this expedition at every pass to try to protect the tomb, but fails, and ultimately decides to use Karis, the mummy, to hunt down the people during the expedition, and uses the Tana Leaf juice as bait. So basically, Endoheb will put this Tana Leaf juice on the people he wants the mummy Karis to attack, mm -hmm. and Karis goes and attacks that person. Then Endoheb takes a step into villain stereotype town, um, kidnaps Marta, and plans to make them both immortal through the Tana Leaves. Babe and Steve save the day just in time, and at the end, they have a successful expedition from Princess Ananka's tomb, um, and they have the princess herself, they have treasures from her tomb, and they're heading back to the U.S. Yeah, uh, Babe shoots Andaheb like, a dozen times, and... Not even during a climax, like, they bump into each other. That's right. And, like, it's really funny just because Andaheb's the main villain and Babe's the comic relief sidekick. Mm -hmm. um, and then... And then they torch the mummy. Yes, Karis uh, gets, like, lit up in flames by uh, Steve. Yes. And Marta is saved. Now, Jack Pierce did the makeup here again, mm -hmm. um, and it was, like, fairly well done. You know, it had some, like, dust coming off it. It was basically the same design, I feel like, as in the original, just on a new actor. Yeah, and that new actor was Tom Tyler. Tom singing Cowboy Tyler <laughs> as Karis. Uh, we had our boy George Zuko yes. as Andoheb. He's not Egyptian, but he's no. playing an Egyptian. Just want to point that out. Um, we had singing cowboy Dick Foran as Steve Banning, Wallace Ford as Babe Jensen, and Peggy Moran as Marta. So the mummy's hand was not significant to us in any sort of way, which you can kind of guess with where it ranked on the list. But we did note that it was an interesting missing link between the 1932 mummy and the 1999 mummy. Mm-hmm a.k.a. the greatest movie of our generation. Um, okay. <laughs> because the 32 movie, while its horror was tepid, it was still horror. Yeah. It... And then the 1999 movie is like adventure Indiana Jones type deal. And The Mummy's Hand was kind of like that step between 
horror to adventure. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you had the introduction of this idea of, like, a cast of characters who are going out on an expedition to find, you know, the mummy rather than just being, like, victims. And you had other elements that would show up later in the 99 mummy, like uh, Andahab's part of, like, a secret order of priests going back ages, um, the priests of Karnak, who, like, secretly have been, like, manipulating things um, in... The 99 movie, they're good guys, but in these movies, they're the bad guys. And, like, Andaheb is also, like, the leader of the, like, museum and stuff. And that's how he tries to, like, block the expedition. And, like, that's all stuff from the 90s movie as well. You have this kind of recognizable, like, hero sidekick girl kind of setup of who the characters are. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of things that come from the 32 movie that end up in the 99 movie, like Imhotep and Anxanamen and stuff. And then there's also a lot of stuff that came from Mummy's Hand. Yeah. And I think the only other thing of note from the Mummy's Hand is when Karis, the mummy, is walking around, he walks like how you imagine a mummy walking. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 32 mummy, we really only see the mummy, like, Imhotep as a mummy in the prologue, and we don't really see enough of him to know how he walks. But if all you had to go off was the 32 mummy, you wouldn't get how we got to shambling, shuffling mummy stereotype. But with the mummy's hand, you do see it. Yeah, the mummy's hand seems to be where a lot of those mummy movie stereotypes come from, much more than the 32, which we said was more like Dracula in Egypt than... Mm -hmm like, what you would expect from a mummy movie. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. We likened the mummy's hand mummy. <laughs> How many times have we said mummy this episode? We should have, if this was a video, we would have a count to in the bottom corner. That would get real tiresome. <laughs> but Karis is almost a bit like a zombie. Yes. In the sense that he's mindless. Um, he's just being sent out to go hunt someone down, and it's not even, like, it, it, it's happenstance that he goes after these people um, because he's really just after the tana leaf juice. If the people didn't have the tana leaf juice, then he wouldn't go after them. Yeah, I think the comment we made at the time was that they'd basically taken Karloff's character from the original and split him into two characters, Andaheb and Karis. Yeah. The other thing that we noticed about Mummy's Hand was, like, Karis's backstory with him and the Princess Ananka is, like, similar to Imhotep and Anxanamen, but not quite the same, because they wanted to, like, change it up enough that it would work for their new story, but be similar enough that they could use flashback footage from the original mummy that talks about Imhotep's origin again as stock footage. Yes. We talked about how that was, like, the only reason they cast Tom Tyler as the mummy was he kind of looked like Boris Karloff if you were squinting. And he has, like, the height. Yes. Basically. Tom Tyler doesn't bring anything to being a mummy, but he's he's a mindless zombie, basically. He isn't... There's nothing to bring. Exactly, yeah. So those are our last two mummy movies. So The Mummy's Tomb mm-hmm. uh, is a direct sequel to The Mummy's Hand. Okay. And it's produced by Ben Piver, the head of Universal's B-movie unit. He produced The Mummy's Hand. That's right. And The Mummy's Tomb is set 30 years after the original, which means, watching this movie, we're going to have to figure out if that means if the original was set in 1912, or if this movie is set in 1970. Yeah. What year is it? 
and, and when you say the original, you're I mean, talking the mummy's, about hand. Yeah, the mummy's hand. Okay, I just not, wanted to not, clarify. Yeah, sorry. Because I think the first mummy is set in, like, 1932. Yeah, it's very explicit. Yeah. Because it's supposed to be, like, ten years after they opened up the tomb, and that's, like, explicitly 1921 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, this, uh, the mummy's tomb is set 30 years after the mummy's hand, and that either means the mummy's hand was in 1912, and this is 1942, or that the mummy's hand was 1940, and this is 1970. We will have to decide <laughs> when we watch the movie. The screenplay uh, for The Mummy's Tomb is written by Griffin J. and Harry Sucher, and uh, Griffin J. was one of the two writers of Mummy's Hand. Directing this time around is Harold Young, a 45-year-old minor director who got his start as an editor in the mid-1920s before moving on to become a director in 1934. His final film would be in 1957. His career was largely made up of forgotten B-pictures, for major studios. Mm, that's too bad. Yeah, just a, a working director. Working man. Returning in the cast is Dick Ferran as Steve Banning, Wallace Ford as Babe Jensen, who's now called Babe Hansen, because I guess they forgot what his last name was in the two years <laughs> since they made the previous movie, and just kind of guessed based on vaguely remembering it. Um, and also George Zuko as High Priest Andahab. But he died. That's right. But, you know, <laughs> since when has being shot full of bullets ever stopped a Universal Movies villain from returning? Uh, that's fair. Yep. New to the cast um, is actor Turhan Bey, uh, who is a Turkish Jew born in Austria in 1922. So if you recall in The Mummy's Hand, uh, the movie started with, like, the old high priest of Karnak, like, about to die, mm -hmm. and he passes on the responsibilities to Andahab, and that's how the movie gets all of its exposition out of the way. Yeah, I this... skipped that because I didn't think that was important to sure. reiterate. Yeah. This movie does the same thing, only now Andahab's the old high priest, and he's <laughs> passing things down to uh, the new high priest, uh, who's played by Turnin Bey, which makes this the first occasion where an Egyptian character in one of these movies is played by someone who's at least not white. Like, Turkish isn't Egyptian, but, like, you're closer. You're, you're... Geographically closer. Yeah, and, like, you know, um, ethnically closer to, like, not the same, but, you know, again, it, you're getting more points on that dartboard than you were before, you know, throwing that <laughs> you're dart. You're still very far from a bullseye, though. So... I mean, to be fair, the 1999 mummy does not have any Egyptians. No. So, uh, Turnin Bey, uh, as I said, was born in Austria in 1922. Um, he was, um, his, I think it's his father was Turkish, his mother was Jewish. After Austria was annexed by the Nazis, mm. he moved with his family to America and became an actor. Uh, his career initially spanned from 1941 to 1953, and he starred in films such as Arabian Nights, Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, so on and so forth. Um, he did become quite popular. He was um, considered to be, like, very handsome and romantic. He was called the Turkish Delight in the fan press. Oof. Oof. That's a little fetishy. <laughs> um, he's, as I said, certainly, I think, the first non-white actor to be cast in a major role in one of these mummy movies. Um, he moved back to Vienna in the mid-1950s and quit acting to become a photographer. Hmm. 
Um, but he returned to Hollywood and acting in the 90s for roles on like TV shows uh, such as Sequest DSV and Babylon 5. Okay. He was like the emperor on Babylon 5. I don't know. Is that like a recurring... I haven't I never, seen Babylon neither 5. Neither have so. I. I've never watched Babylon 5. The new romantic leads in this film are uh, played by John Hubbard, who's playing, I believe it's John Banning, the son of Steve Banning. Okay. And uh, Hubbard made his career playing male leads as a substitute for young stars who had been drafted into the war. <laughs> like That was basically his whole career in the 40s was just like poaching roles that like would have gone to like bigger stars, but they were fighting. Um, Why wasn't he fighting? I don't know. He might have just been like found 4F or something. Okay. His romantic co-star is Elise Knox, who was a popular World War II pinup girl at the time. But the big addition to the cast of this film is Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> so having proven himself as both the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster, Universal's... Proven as Frankenstein's monster. He did it. He did, in fact, do it. Universal's new golden boy of horror films uh, replaces Tom Tyler as Karis, uh, the mummy. Tyler but had... the mummy got torched. Yeah, and have got shot. At least the mummy has the excuse <laughs> that you can bring him back to life with Tana leaves. <laughs> so Tyler had hated playing the mummy. He hated the makeup requirements for the part. And also his career was based around playing heroes like Captain Marvel. Uh, so he decided... And singing cowboys. Yes. Uh, so he decided not to return, uh, for the sequel. Did uh, they ask him? Who knows? <laughs> so Chaney, uh, steps into the role of Karis. Uh, he spent eight hours a day in Jack Pierce's makeup chair to portray the role, and he hated every single minute of it, because Chaney keeps doing these makeup-heavy parts, even though he never, ever has a good time with it. His build... Uh, was noticeably different to Tyler's uh, because, you know, Cheney's, like, I guess, you know, tall like Tyler was, but he's a bit more, like... Broad. Broad, yeah. He's as broad as a house. Yeah. You know, and, and as we said, Tyler had really just been cast because of his resemblance to Karloff. Who has a bit more of a slender look. Right. I mean, I guess Cheney had played a Karloff role already now, taking over as the, the monster, so... Yeah, but the monster... Karloff's monster had, like, prosthetics to be broad mm -hmm. and wide. So, anyways... <laughs> Sorry. With the difference in body type being kind of noticeable, dialogue was added to explain that being burned in the climax of the last film had changed the mummy's appearance. Sure. So The Mummy's Tomb was released October 23rd, 1942, as the B picture on a double bill with Night Monster. So Night Monster was an A picture? Um, I don't think it was, like, budgeted as an A picture. Like, I think it was budgeted at, like, that low B picture rate. So really it was a double bill of two B, B. pictures. Okay. Uh, I just mean that, like, Night Monster had the top bill on that double bill. Okay, okay. Critical reviews of The Mummy's Tomb at the time were negative. <laughs> uh, the consensus was that it did not live up to the standards of Universal's other horror movies. Well, that bodes well. Um, which one would have been shown first? Typically the B-movie gets shown first. So, okay. so Mummy's Tomb would get shown first and then Night Monster. I will just, like, point out that... Was it Horror Island? 
Yes. That was supposed to be like double featured with Wolfman? No, um, so Horror Island was double featured with Man Made Monster. Right. And then Wolfman was supposed to get double featured with, I believe it was Mad Doctor of Market Street. So. Um, and they decided not to because Pearl Harbor happened. But I, I, the reason I'm bringing this up is um, those are two cases where the like even though both movies are B movies, the movie shown first is more comedy than horror mm-hmm. that, or anything else, and then the for lack of a better word, the A picture, like the top build picture, is more horror That's right. than anything else. So that might, that doesn't really bode well <laughs> for this movie. Sure. Well, how are we watching The Mummy's Tomb? So it's available as part of The Mummy Legacy Collection on DVD mm. and Blu-ray from Universal Home Video. That makes sense. It's also available to stream on YouTube and Google Play. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and you'll find a YouTube playlist there. Ben's loaded up The Mummy's Tomb up on there. You'll just have to pay to rent, but, you know, it's available to stream. It's like four bucks. Yeah, that's that's simple. That's easy. That's doable. That's one load of laundry. <laughs> In the meantime, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Mummy's Tomb from 1942, directed by Harold Young. See you on the other side, everybody. to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Mummy's Tomb from 1942, directed by Harold Young and starring Lon Chaney Jr. Sarah, what'd you think? If you can get through the first ten minutes, this movie's a real fun treat. Yeah, I would recommend, like, if you're actually watching along with us and you listened to our intro bit before the musical break, just skip the first ten minutes. If you didn't listen to the intro and just jumped into the movie... Okay, maybe watch the first ten minutes, especially if you've never seen The Mummy's Hand. If you have seen The Mummy's Hand and recently, skip the first ten minutes. Yeah, it's literally just a summarized version of The Mummy's Hand. Yeah. With all of the footage associated. Um, Which, like, I can see why they did it. Yeah, I mean, it's been two years since that movie came out and, like, home video didn't exist. Yeah, so I get it. But for me personally, I was just like, ugh. Okay, but then, like I said, the rest of the movie I had a lot of fun with. It's very entertaining. Yeah. Do you want to tell us what it's about? Yeah, so as we talked about in the intro, it's 30 years after The Mummy's Hand. I'm pretty sure it's 1942, not 72. Right, so uh, that means the original movie took place in 1912, apparently. Yeah. And uh, the movie's set in Mapleton, Massachusetts, and I guess... Plundering Egyptian tombs is a good racket, because Steve Banning is very wealthy, and he's all old and retired, and he's living with his older sister, and he's got his son, Dr. John Banning, and his fiance Isabel over, and he's telling them the story of the time he fought a mummy. And that is, as Sarah said, the segue into just a ton of stock footage from The Mummy's Hand, basically ten minutes worth, which, I mean... is the length of a single reel. Yeah. If you are making a B-movie 
with a one hour runtime and you can get 10 minutes out of just using stock footage from the previous movie, like, that's a lot of money you just saved in the budget. Yeah. So after that's done, we find out that Andahab, the evil priest from the first movie, survived uh, getting shot a bunch of times. And falling Uh, downstairs. Yep. It kind of like messed up his hand, but that's about it. And he is about to die. Die of old age. He is transferring the position (laughs) of high priest onto Mehemet Bey, his new successor, played by Turhan Bey. And, um... Wait. Did they just use the same last name? Um, Maybe they thought they would do it because the first mummy, he goes as Ardeth Bay. So Bay as like uh, like a name element is like a like an honorific in um, like Turkish cultures or like the Ottoman Empire or something like Esquire or like Sir John or whatever. Okay. Um, I don't know enough about that to speak any more in-depth or uh, authoritatively than I just have. Okay. Um, but, yeah, it's it's not like... It's almost stereotypical. It's like having a Sikh whose name is, like, Singh, right? It's not like a, uh, a totally... Or Khan. Right, exactly. Anyways, Andahab is transferring the priesthood down to this guy. He explains, uh, you know, Karis is still alive uh, after getting burnt up. There's a nice bit of, like, choice on Jack Pierce's part with the makeup here where Karis is, like, missing an eye and, like, one side of his face is all kind of, dis- like, deformed from, like, getting burnt up and stuff. Um, but he's still alive. And Anahab describes that the new plan is to set Karis loose to kill all of the Bannings. So Steve Banning and also, like, his whole family as revenge. And... And Babe. And Babe, Yeah. And it's it's sort of unclear why they've waited 30 years for this revenge, but um, our personal theory is that uh, Andahab knew that he was a big screw-up last time and was basically waiting for it to be another priest's problem. So <laughs> Andahab transfers the tan leaves and, and the whole explanation for how to control the mummy and everything over to uh, the new guy, uh, as well as explaining to him that they've set up for him to take over the job of caretaker of the cemetery in Mapleton so that he can just, you know ease his way into the community, and I guess have somewhere to, like, hide the mummy's sarcophagus. It makes sense. Right. And then Anaheb dies. Like, right there. Like, yeah. mid-conversation. So, Mehmet Bey and Karis take a boat to America and set about killing Bannings. Uh, Karis kills Steve Banning, and then he kills his sister, Jane Banning, who was not in the first movie, but Peggy Moran did not return to be Marta in this movie. There's, like, a picture of her on, like, a a nightstand and like she's talked about and like she's in the flashbacks but she's already dead by the start of this movie so i i get the feeling that like the jane banning character who's like um steve banning's sister was like a hasty rewrite to replace her in the story yeah. anyways so Karis kills the two bannings uh he also in the process of this like runs into like a servant who lives on the banning estate or something and drives him like mad to the point of paralysis. Yeah, like petrified by fear. And the, it's a neat thing. And the way that these murders are happening <laughs> is that Mehmet Bey uh, you know, feeds Karis the nine tana leaves ne- needed to um bring him Give to locomotion. Him right. And then Karis just slowly <laughs> shamble mummy walks all the way from the cemetery, all the way across town to the Banning Estate, 
and then like and then just finds who he's there to kill and strangles them and like if they're if they're on the second floor he will climb up the trellis to get to the balcony and come in through the window and it doesn't matter that he's dragging a foot behind him and is extremely slow like he is coming for you he (laughs) i i don't know if you're planning on like giving this level of detail ben but I just have to, like, note that, like, the first time that Karis is making this journey, he walks in front of a car. Like, we see... Okay, let me back up. The first time Karis is making this journey, there's this uh, teenage couple parked at, like, Makeout Hill, and they make it out. And I was like, oh, are we going to get murdered teenagers? No. Because Karis is on a mission to kill specific people, but his shadow does spookily go across the car and it freaks them out and they talk to the sheriff later. Yeah, it's our, it's our second um, instance of teenagers making out, getting interrupted by a monster. Yeah, what was uh, the first one? The first one was all the way back in 1933's Night of Terror. Right, right. Anyways, I just, that, that made me so happy and they didn't get killed, but that's fine. So, um... <laughs> but that kind of gives you the sense of, like, the enjoyment, like, how, what you take enjoyment from in this movie. So with Banning's getting killed, um, Babe Hansen shows <laughs> up uh, from New York. And Babe is a much, like, different character in this movie than he was in the original. He was a silly comic relief character in that movie. And here he's, like, a lot older and more serious. And he's trying to tell everyone, like... Hey, the fucking mummy killed them. Yeah. Like, you're finding gray dust dirt marks on their throats as they've been strangled. That's mummy mold. It was the mummy, stupid. And no one will believe him, despite the fact that, like, I mean, who else would be having the motivation to do this? Uh, so Babe ends up getting killed by the mummy. And it's only then that people are like, maybe it's the mummy. Because John, who hasn't believed any of this mummy talk up to this point, because he's a doctor... Um, he takes like a bit of linen they find and some of the mold or the dirt on people's necks and brings it to the professor at the university. And this guy is like a Renaissance scientist because he's able to tell from analyzing this linen that, uh, you know, the mold on it is moldy myrrh. The other chemicals on the linen are two other chemicals used in the creation of mummies that the chemicals themselves and the linen are 3000 years old. And that the hieroglyph that he found vaguely imprinted on the uh, linen is the hieroglyph for the Princess Sananka. Which means this one scientist is like a chemist and like a, uh, like, uh, <laughs> historian? historian, like a Egyptologist, like, he's just got all these things going. Anyways. When we were watching the movie, I thought it was the coroner. And I was like, what kind of books is this coroner reading? But then I realized it was the professor and it's fine. Yeah, because they already did a scene with the coroner earlier in the movie where he's he like, like, I it's don't just have dirt. Yeah, I don't know. It's dirt. It's not from around here. Yeah, fuck if I know. <laughs> so now they know it's the mummy. But Dr. John Banning gets his draft notice to come join the medical corps of the army to fight in World War II um, or maybe the Vietnam War. If it's the 70s. Right. So, anyways. So he has three days to get his shit together. Which means marrying Isabel. Now, unluckily for Isabel, um, Hemet Bay, in his, like, few times where he's not just cooped up at the cemetery, <laughs> has been, like, spying on her and decided that he needs himself that sexy, sexy blonde American to live with him forever as his mate. The exact thing that Andahab was like, hey, don't, don't do, do this. this. This is where I failed. Yeah. Don't give in to temptation. 
And he's like, yeah, sure, but them blondes, though. Right. So he gives into temptation, and he tells Karis, like, hey, go capture her. We're going to make her immortal, and that way we're going to ensure that there's, like, you know, a future line of high priests to keep you alive. Because even when they're not giving Karis the nine ton leaves to make a move, they still have to feed him three ton leaves a night just to keep him alive. Yeah. So, Karis... In reaction to this, Karis is like, excuse me? Yeah. Like, Karis doesn't have dialogue, um, <laughs> and his movement is very limited. The makeup is clearly so heavy that, like, Lon Chaney can't really move his face all that much. Um, he also, like, only has use of one arm. Like, he's been strangling all these people one-handed. And succeeding, obvi. Right. But Karis, he manages to convey with Karis's body language that Karis is, like, not pleased with this. It's like, listen, motherfucker, like, this is how I got burnt up and Andahep got shot a million times. Like, this is a bad plan. He even goes to, like, choke out uh, Mohammed Bey at one point, but, like, obviously he has to do what the high priest says because, like, that's where his supply of tunnel leaves is coming from. So, quite reluctantly, Karis sets out to go capture Isabel. So someone watched Frankenstein because, like, <laughs> the, Isabel and John have just decided to get, like, speed married uh, before John goes off to war. And so she's, like, gotten fitted for her gown and it's, like, the night before the wedding or whatever. And Karis shows up and captures her out of her house and is, you know, carrying her across the countryside. And <laughs> the townsfolk, uh, like, organize, like, a literal, like, torch and pitchfork mob to go after the mummy. And it's great because this is the first universal horror movie that's explicitly set in the modern day in America. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time we've seen the the, um, the Torch and Pitchfork mob organized out of, like, American small towns folk. Yeah. And they're all like, right, but where do we look for them? And this one old dude <laughs> perks up in the crowd and is like, well, the new caretaker at the cemetery is Egyptian. Maybe he knows what's up. Except that it takes him, like, half an hour to say it, that. It's so funny. It, it, he talks exactly like a rambling old person who won't get to the point. Anyway, so they're like, alright, yeah, there is only one non-white person in this whole movie. <laughs> Let's get him. So the... Oh, boy. Karis gets the girl back to Mohammed Bey, who has her strapped down to a coffin in a mausoleum. Uh, like the top of a coffin. Not in the coffin, like on top of the <laughs> coffin. And he's explained to her, like, sh she's gonna be immortal and bear his children, so, like, clearly this is the best case scenario for her. And Karis is just sort of standing in the corner like, this is such a terrible idea, man. <laughs> and the mob shows up, and Mohammed Bey goes out to, like, meet them, and he's like, ah, gentlemen, like, what can I do for you? Because there's, like, really no reason, like, I'm just a guy who works in town, like, and they're like, what have you done with Isabel? And he's like, I don't really know who that is. And meanwhile, he's told Karis, like, when the mob shows up, like, take her away from here and hide her, yes. um, you know, so that the mob can't connect me with her kidnapping. So Karis grabs her and starts shambling slowly away <laughs> with her. And meanwhile, the mob spots the mummy, and they're like, hey, the mummy's getting away with the girl. John Banning just decides that, like, Mehmet Bey is guilty on, like, no evidence, and is like, ah, like, we knew it was you all along. And Mehmet Bey's like, well, fuck, you defiled temples, so you're a bad guy too, and, like, pulls a gun on him, and he's about to shoot him when, boom, the sheriff of this shitty small town just shoots Mehmet Bey, like, point blank, and they're like, well... <laughs> That's one less non-white person in the world, and they, like, take off after the mummy. And just leave his body there. Yeah, just... It's just, like, it, what? Yep. And so Karis. <laughs> so Karis, my dude, Karis... His, his brain is moldy. He's not... That's very true. Think. That's very true. So Karis heard, hide the girl. And here's what he does. He walks her all the way across town back to the Banning estate, 
climbs up a trellis to the second floor while holding the girl, which is a really Very impressive, impressive feat, yeah. given that he's only got, like, the one arm. And he gets up onto the second floor and is going to, like, put her in one of the bedrooms. Now, he's followed by the mob. They catch up to him real quick because, you know, he is very slow. And it's a small town. It, and he's very slow. Like, there are, there, like, I don't really understand how Babe got got when, like, Karis basically, <laughs> he just like, had to run away. All he, he had to do was he run away. He into an alley. Blind alley. Dead, yeah, dead oh. end. He's throwing tires at yeah, him. Yeah, it's like, just run. <laughs> like, it's so easy to get away from the mummy. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, so they catch up, and they see him on the second floor there. Now, John has the idea of, I'm going to run into the house and up the stairs and get the mummy. The mob is like, let's just start throwing our torches at the house, this house of Dr. John Banning, the person whose fiancé we are trying to rescue. That's a great <laughs> idea. And who's still in the mummy's arms, too, like... As you're throwing the, the fire. So the house starts to light on fire. John's running in. He runs up the stairs. Karis meets him on the stairs. Like, Karis went into the bedroom and then just started going down the stairs, like... So wait, you climbed up to the second floor, which was really hard to do, so that you could get inside and start walking down the... Like, I do not understand Karis' thought process. Anyways, he, um, when John, he sees John coming, turns around, goes back to the bedroom, back out the window onto the balcony to go climb down the trellis again. He's slow enough that, like, John can get around, get Isabel out of his hands, go down the trellis... Uh, the mummy gets cornered by, like, the sheriff and his assistant. They shoot him a bunch. That doesn't work. So the sheriff and his assistant, they're like, all right, well, whatever. They go down the trellis, and they just basically decide that burning down the banning house is the best way to get the mummy, which is what they do, and it does. And that's the end. John and Isabel get married. Yeah, for a universal picture, it was surprising that we had a denouement. Yeah, like a really pointless one, too, because, like, you can basically assume... That's what happened. And, like, it's it's so funny because, like, the house goes up in flames and we see Karis get burnt up again. And it's like, cool, that's the ending. And then there's, like, a spinning newspaper that's like, monster destroyed, Banning gets married. And we're like, all right, cool. And then there's, like, another scene. And all it is is just them, like, pulling up to their motel after the wedding being like, hey, Train we... Station. Sure. Hey, we got away from the crowds. Like, we have a moment of peace. And the townsfolk, like, pop out of hiding and are like, actually, congratulations still. Anyways, that's the movie. Yeah. So... It's an hour long. The first ten minutes is just the flashback to the first movie, and Karis gets to Mapleton and starts killing people at the 20-minute mark. So really, there's 40 minutes of plot in this 60-minute movie. It's real fun and enjoyable. And I'm going to say it's real good, mm -hmm. but I don't mean that in, like, um, like, this is a good horror movie. Like, it's a fun horror movie. And I think that what's enjoyable about it is that it's not, like so bad it's good, like Devil Bat, mm. or Corpse Vanishes, mm -hmm. or something. It's just really fun. Yeah, it's entertaining. I think it's not good in the way that, like, an actually good movie is good. Yes. My theory on this is that it's simple. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a very simple, straightforward, you know, movie. Um, it's short, so you it doesn't last, like, it doesn't overstay its welcome. The pacing is go, go, go. Uh, there's always something going on, so you never, like, get bored, and it also never slows down long enough for you to be like, wait, what? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's no comic relief, which is a big help. Yeah. Um, you know, even Babe is a serious character this time around, and the plot is, is very, very basic. Um, 
Now, on the one hand, that means that, like, the story isn't, like, doing anything interesting or special. But on the other hand, it also means that the story never doesn't make sense. Because the story is just, the priest has come to this town to kill these people. The end. Like, that's it, right? He does that. (laughs) Moving away from Egypt and bringing the movie to small-town America does mean that you kind of lose that Tomb Raider aesthetic that mummy movies, like, typically have. Like, we're not going into pyramids and dealing with traps and and having, you know, it's not the sands of Egypt anymore or whatever. But I felt like that helped with the horror aesthetic rather than adventure aesthetic. Also, I thought that the sort of whole deal of, like, the unstoppable silent killing machine prowling through a small town killing off the cast one at a time really gave this movie kind of a proto-slasher movie flavor. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of funny, because, like, in the intro, you mentioned how, with the mummy's hand being, like, the stepping stone from the mummy to the mummy, (laughs) the 1932 mummy to 1999, it was, like, the the shift towards adventure. So I really had no idea, going into the mummy's tomb, what to expect. Mm -hmm. Because, like, for me, the genesis or evolution made sense already. Yeah. There's, like, Easter eggs of the mummy's hand in the 1999 mummy. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything of the mummy's tomb in there. No, this movie, honestly, is more like Halloween. Yeah. Like, if Halloween didn't involve teenagers and instead involved, like, an ancient Egyptian curse. Like, 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 Karis in this movie is Michael Myers. It's just the differences is that, like, this is a B-horror movie from the 40s, so it has a very different tone because it's not scary really Mm -hmm. it's just more like exciting uh because there's always stuff going on and also the music from ghost of frankenstein is being reused again and wolfman yes Um, i don't think universal movies had new music like since like (laughs) son of frankenstein yeah what i also kind of liked about this movie is um i didn't bring this up because I was trying to be succinct, but the first Mummy movie, when it was being written by John Balderson, a lot of the inspiration for it came from the excavation of King Tut's tomb and the rumors of a curse. Right. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, this whole franchise wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the idea of, like, the Mummy's curse, right? Yeah, but, like, what was kind of neat with that backdrop in the 32 Mummy is it felt a lot like Imhotep slash Ardith Bay was, I mean, obviously the curse personified, but you've kind of felt like on his side. Like, yeah, fuck the people who have stolen from Egypt. Okay. And then that's kind of brought back in in this movie of fuck the people that stole from Egypt, specifically this one princess's tomb, but we're not on their side. Like, I don't in know... In the same way that we kind of felt in the 32 Mummy. Yeah, I, I always am, like, wary of how much to read into that, because I always wonder how much of that comes from being, like, a 2019 human instead of, like, a, um you know, an early mid-century human. If the whole, like, oh, you guys are cursed because you stole from Egypt thing would, like, resonate as, like, a valid motivation, you know, mm-hmm. in the same way. Um, but I see what, but I see what you're saying. I thought it was just neat that they kind of brought that inspiration back into the, into this new franchise, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that makes it work is that in the Karloff mummy, there's a time jump, right? You have that prologue scene that's in 1921 and then we cut 10 years later to 1932 and the people who are on that exposition are getting killed off. 
And the thing that makes this work is the time jump, right? Where we're 30 years later, so we can have this curse come back to everyone who was in the first movie and kill them off, right? Mm -hmm. The movie's very um, dedicated to killing off everyone who was in the mummy's hand. Like, George Zuko dies mid-sentence, like, at the start of the movie. And then, like, Karis just kills uh, Steve and Babe, and they're gone. And then Karis dies at the end, so, like, everyone from that first movie's dead now. I do just want to point out, like, be very Gun Chaney a bit, because, mm-hmm. like, he's great in Wolfman, and he's terrible in Ghost of Frankenstein, because he, he just shouldn't have been cast in that role. I think he's better here than he is in Ghost of Frankenstein. He's hilarious as Karis, as yes. far as I'm, like, there's the fact, like, I mean, the <laughs> shambling, slow-moving mummy moving through the town is funny enough, but, like, when we, when we say Chaney is good here, it's, like, within a very narrow parameter because he can barely do anything like he can hardly move he can hardly move his face like there's there's like he could be getting played by a mannequin and it wouldn't make a ton of difference but in the few scenes where he does get to act and show a bit of personality um like the thing where he clearly thinks the idea to kidnap Isabel is a terrible (laughs) idea like it's great yeah and I think the makeup by Pierce is very good yes um it helps that the mummy, at least in this version, like Karis, not Imhotep, right? That Karis the mummy has never really had any personality. Yes. Um, so Cheney can kind of bring a little bit to it, and it's fun, as opposed to when Cheney was being the Frankenstein's monster, in which case you're... It's like a step down because you already started with such a good product. Yeah, you're, you're comparing him to Karloff, yeah. right? I'm not comparing Karis like Cheney as Karis, to Karloff as Imhotep. I'm comparing Cheney as Karis to Tom Tyler as Karis, right? And he's way better. Also, like, it felt simplified in that Mehmet is just ordering him to go kill. He's not having to, like, hide tana leaf juice yes. everywhere. It, yeah, it, so it, it felt like Karis had a bit more agency in a weird way. That was my big problem with the mummy's hand, like, just logistically, was this idea that Andahab was sending like, agents into people's, like, tents to, like, plant tana leaves so Karis would go into the tents and kill them. And it's like, if you can send an agent into the tent, just send the agent in to kill them. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Like, Karis <laughs> is so slow. But here, like, when you can just be like, Karis, go kill these people, and he's like, can actually understand, like, that was the thing. Like, I don't think Karis in Mummy's Hand demonstrated that he could even, like, understand, like, speech. Like, he had no personality at all, right? He was just a zombie. Um, So this version of Cars has a bit more. The thing that makes this movie work is that it's short, it's Mm fast-paced, you know, because it's not not good, but because it's short and it's fast-paced, it's fun and it's painless. There's nothing in this movie that's so bad that it jerks you out of the entire, like, experience. Like, the stuff that's dumb about this movie is just because it's a dumb horror movie. It's fine. Um, there's a lot of stock footage. Like, even outside of the flashback in the first reel. Yeah, there's all a lot the, of stock from Frankenstein. All the stuff of the giant angry mob is stock footage from Frankenstein. Like, almost all of it. It's yeah. kind of hilarious. <laughs> it's enjoyable, though. Having oh. um, Dick Ferran and Wallace Ford return is actually a lot of fun. Um, yeah, least... I was surprised. I thought it was going to be tedious, but um, I think they were playing a version of their characters that was different enough that... Exactly. Yeah, that it, it, it was fine. Yeah, like, both men have become these, like, settled down, much more respectable personas um, over, like, who they were in the original, right? Like... 
because the original was very like Indiana Jones and like a goofy sidekick. Mm-hmm. And here they've like both become these like respectable old gentlemen, and it's kind of it's interesting to see the same actors get to do that. I was actually kind of bummed when Babe died, which is quite a change from how I felt about him in the first movie. Yeah. Like, it was kind of like, oh, that's unfortunate, Um, which is surprising. But it does show that more and more horror movies are realizing that you have to kill off your big cast. Yes. Yes, exactly. That the point of having a large cast is to kill them. Uh, Turin Bay I thought was really good as the villain. Um, He doesn't get to do, like, a ton, but... He was good. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll just point out is, um, like Ben said in the plot summary, we get kind of an explicit invoking of World War Two that it's happening. Right. Or at least a war. But So we have the draft. Yeah, I mean, if you were in 1942 watching the movie, you would just assume it's World War Two. I guess there's the thing where the, the, the reporter says that... Um, he had a choice between this uh, story or covering the Russian front, and he chose this... Story. Which I guess makes this explicitly World War Two. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> we, we get, like, spinning newspapers saying, oh, yeah. like, here's, uh, like, some theories as to who's committing the murders. And someone is like, nah, man, it's witches. Yep. We're in Massachusetts. It's witches. And that, yep. that was just a very fun moment. Um, let's move on to ranking. Okay, Sarah, so I had a real hard time... Uh, finding a range for this? Oh, that's funny, because I have a very specific range. Okay. So well, then you maybe go first. I'll go first. So, the first place I started looking was where the mummy's hand is, right? Yeah, that makes uh, sense. That's, exactly. So, here's my thing. On the one hand... On the one mummy's hand? Right. I think I enjoyed watching the mummy's tomb more than watching the mummy's hand. I say I think, because it's kind of been a while since the mummy's hand, and I don't really remember how much I enjoyed it that much. I mean, it's down here at number 69, so <laughs> clearly not, like, a lot. But um, on the other hand, The Mummy's Hand has a lot more, I think, of what you expect from a mummy movie, right? Like, people in Egypt going through tombs and secret passages and altars and, and things like that. So I'm not sure, based on those criteria, that this is better than The Mummy's Hand. But it's definitely better than Werewolf of London, <laughs> which is bad. So, my floor here is number 70. Okay. That's the lowest I'll go on this. And I kept working my way up, and I was like, well, you know, this is a lot more fun to watch than, um, you know, the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde. This is, I had more fun with this than the Bat Whispers. I really enjoyed this more than, like, Supernatural. Like, yeah, this is better than Mad Monster in terms of, like, just how much fun it is to watch. Like, oh, yeah, I definitely, like, watch this over Ghost of Frankenstein. (laughs) You know, and I kept working my way up and up and up and up and up. And then I hit The Raven at number 36. And I was like, you know, The Raven, to me, like, evokes the same feeling of fun that this movie does, where you're just kind of having fun with, like, the macabreness of it and so on. Sure. They're just both kind of enjoyable movies. Uh, You know, and then I looked immediately above The Raven, and there was stuff like, you know, White Zombie and Orlax Honda and and Phantom of the Convent, like, stuff that we actually have respect for. And uh, so that's kind of where I ended up as a ceiling. So... My range is 37 to 70, which Oof. is, you know, 33 movies big. Yeah. Okay, so my range is much This is smaller. my problem when we end up with bad movies that are enjoyable. Yeah. Is it's like, where, how does that rank? Yeah. Listen, this is episode 95. Yeah. And it's at the point now where I dread getting to ranking because it's real hard, man. Like, the rest of this 
research, watching a movie, and discussing it, easy peasy compared to this part. My range is significantly smaller than yours, okay. but it does fit inside. Oh, that's good. That's, yes. That's good. Then this will be easy. So I, too, started looking at the mummy's hand, mm -hmm. and I was like, this is way better. Okay. This is way better. So I was like, okay, well then what about comparing this to the 32 mummy? Right. So my floor is 53, and that would be putting this above the 32 mummy. Right. Because um, the... It's enjoyable. Yeah, <laughs> it's not the, boring. Because the 1932 mummy is very pretty, and we respect it a lot, and it's also extremely dull. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then I was kind of working my way up, and I kind of stopped at 47 with The Corpse Vanishes. Okay, because, interesting, interesting. Because <laughs> I was like... Man, I don't know if, like, this movie is as bonkers fun as Corpse Vanishes was for me. So that's kind of where I stopped. Now, before I kind of get into a bit more detail here, I do realize that Ghost of Frankenstein is above that. Yes. And Ghost of Frankenstein, compared to The Mummy's Tomb, Mummy's Tomb kind of has to take it. But this was where I was looking, so maybe we right. can discuss this a little bit. So, here's my argument for why Mummy's Tomb is better than Corpse Vanishes. Okay. I don't know which one is more fun, but here's why it's better. The plot of Mummy's Tomb makes sense. Like, listen, listen the plot of listen. Corpse Vanishes makes sense. Okay. From a certain point, point of, of view. view. Yeah, exactly. Once it's explained to you. <laughs> it's so, just so fun. The advantage of Mummy's Tomb is that the story is very simple. The priests of Karnak want to kill the Bannings. They send the mummy after them. That's it. Mm -hmm. The plot of Corpse Vanishes is Bella Lugosi is a scientist who is married to a European countess who is 20 years older than him and he's 60. But she's obsessed with looking young. So to keep her young, he has been killing brides at the altar and then stealing their bodies disguised as a mortician, bringing <laughs> them back to his castle outside of this small American town and then extracting their glands and then injecting them into his wife to keep his wife looking 20. So... Yeah, he kidnaps virgins for Botox. Right. Simple. Okay. <laughs> so I think I think that's that would be my argument though, okay, okay. of why to put Mummy's Tomb above. The plot is a much easier pill to swallow, you know? Okay. In that case then I think the highest I would put this I don't know, I feel like maybe below Dracula's daughter. Yeah, I mean looking above Ghost of Frankenstein, you get into a really like tricky range of movies to rank. Because you have the Nazi student of Prague, which is fine. Like, it's fine. Yeah, but there's nothing that really stood out to me for it. Yeah, but it was fine. Um, and then you have Dracula's Daughter, which is, like, ambitious, but, like, a complete mess at the same time. Yeah, and kind of killed horror. Yes. And then you have, like, Murders in the Room Morgue above that, which has, like, basically the same problem of, like, went too far and had to undercut itself, right? Um, so... And then there's Dr. X, and I'm not putting this above Dr. X. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think I can. Dr. X, um... Is really good. Sure. I mean, it does have a lot more comic relief than this does. Yeah, but it's real good. I think, I think the thing about Mummy's Tomb, and why I think... I think I'm gonna agree with you, below Dracula's Daughter, above Student of Prague. And the reason why I'm gonna agree with you on that is, you look at Ghost of Frankenstein, it's the fourth Frankenstein movie. Mm -hmm. This is the third Mummy movie. You know, so you can't really give either of them points for originality. 
but Mummy's Tomb is still doing new things with the franchise in a way that Ghost of Frankenstein was not. Ghost of Frankenstein was just made out of bits and pieces from previous movies, right? Definitely. That's my feeling. And then you look at Student of Prague. Well, Student of Prague's a remake of a remake, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, in sound, but, like, it's not really that original either. But then you get to Dracula's Daughter, and I think the key difference is exactly what I was saying. Even though Dracula's Daughter is a mess, Dracula's Daughter is ambitious, I don't really think The Mummy's Tomb is ambitious. No. Like, it's just what it is. It accomplishes it well, but sometimes taking a risk is worth it. Yeah. So, okay, I'm good with that then. So, entering the list at number 43, The Mummy's Tomb, from 1942, directed by Harold Young. I feel good about this. Yeah. I was complaining earlier about ranking. This wasn't too bad. Yeah. Um, if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today. You can also find an appeals box if you would like to contest this or literally any other ranking. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. We're available on any podcasting software where you can subscribe to our RSS feed. We'd really appreciate it if Wherever you do listen to us, you could leave a rating or a review or a comment if that service allows for those kinds of engagement. Um, We really like hearing from our listeners. We really like, you know, getting feedback. We like having discussions. Um, We like talking about horror movies, so we'd love to talk about them with you. Exactly. Um, Another way that you can help us out is by just telling people about us through social media or in real life, just recommending the show to other people. Uh, Word of mouth really helps the show out a lot. Another thing that we would really appreciate is if you checked out our Patreon. Uh, It's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. And heading over there, you can support the show for a dollar a month. Um, That goes to help for hosting costs and uh, just like the time that we put into the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, If you do bump that up to $5 a month, you get access to bonus audio each week. If you bump that up to $10 a month, you get access to horror fiction, uh, short fiction that I write that is just for patrons. And the cool thing is, is that our archive is available. None of the posts are like timed or anything. So all of the past bonus audio, all of the past uh, fiction, um, the special music we did for Halloween, it's all available for you if you sign up at the appropriate level. Um, so once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. Uh, we'd really appreciate it if you took a look at that. Thanks, guys. Okay, so what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, next week it's time to return to the Monogram 9. <laughs> Uh, it is, I think, the fifth of the Monogram 9. I don't okay. know for sure. I'll know for sure next week. But it's Bella Lugosi at Monogram. Uh, it's called Bowery at Midnight. Bow- Bowery? Yeah, Bowery. Okay. Like uh, like the thing that Queen Titania sleeps on in Midsummer Night's Dream? Mm, no. Uh, I think it's Bowery as in... Like that's the only definition of Bowery... The street and neighborhood in the southern portion of Manhattan? The Bowery? Oh, okay. I think... Ooh, street crime. Right. So... Street horror. I don't know anything about Bowery at Midnight other than it's Bell Lugosi and it's Monogram, 
but the one-sentence synopsis from Google is Criminology Professor Brenner, played by Bela Lugosi, uses his soup kitchen as a front for a gang committing robberies and murders. Oh boy. Okay, well, the Manhattan definition is probably more likely. Yes. (laughs) Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.